Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the middle of July, just after St. Swithin's Day. Tradition has it that whatever the weather is on St. Swithin's Day, it will persist for 40 days. This came about when the saints' bones were moved from their resting place and a torrential thunderstorm broke out and lasted for 40 days. The superstitious believed that Swithin was weeping for the disturbance of his bones. In the past, people's livelihoods were dictated far more by the weather than they are today. Travel and trade were highly dependent on tides, winds and whether or not the roads were passable and extreme conditions could ruin vital crops people relied upon to live. This year, we've already seen flash floods, thunderstorms and threats of a drought, which will either make or break our little garden and threaten or nurture the tomatoes we're trying to grow this year. The sound you can hear is Martin chopping wood. This simple, repetitive action is one which echoes down the centuries. I'm reminded of Giles Winterbourne, Thomas Hardy's character in The Woodlanders, a woodsman who passes his days in the forest, cutting, planting and growing. I'm mentioning Hardy because we're off to his home county Dorset for today's episode, but also because the novel explores the tension between the rural idyll and the advance of civilization in the form of industrialization and technology, something I think is still alarmingly relevant now. While romanticising a simpler life, The Woodlanders also acknowledges that it's hard and sometimes terribly lonely. Our story today takes us into the dark heart of the countryside, and a gothic horror behind the beautiful hedgerows and picturesque fields of dairy cows. So listen out for the sound of phantom hooves and ghastly pistol shots, and be careful before you start digging. You might not like what you unearth. So gather round the campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens at down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be with a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm churning butter and gazing out of the dairy window over the heath to spy that tall, handsome man riding to join me. It's my co-host, Martin Vaux. Hello, I was riding over and a goat looked at me funny. I'm so sorry. (laughs) For those of you who can't get enough of Three Ravens, we also had the first episode of our mini-series out in the last few days. Yes, we talked about the intriguing, magical tradition of witch bottles. We have a whole host of exciting things coming up in the four different mini-series over the next little while including our first Three Ravens bestiary this week. Yes, the bonus episodes are coming out every Thursday, so look out for them in your podcast feed. This week we're also releasing the first episode of our Three Ravens Film Club, which is a 
Patreon exclusive. So if you're interested in that, please do come on over to patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and find out what that's all about. We're watching the blood on Satan's claw this month and encourage everyone in the three ravens community to give it a watch and let us know what you think. We also have two new supporters on Patreon this week. So thank you to Kelly and Simon. All hail Kelly, King of Patreon. All hail Simon, King of Patreon. As ever, if you would like exclusive content, including Patreon exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, all our mainline episodes ad free, our stories as text versions, the Three Ravens newsletter containing all of England's major folk customs for the month, tarot spreads, magic spells, all sorts of folky goodness, please consider signing up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And of course, we're now running an all new card design contest. So we're inviting original artwork that would look nice on the front of a greetings card from anyone in the three ravens community on the theme of the folklore of winter. Please send us your entries to three ravens podcast at gmail.com as a JPEG. And we will judge all the entries at the end of the series to come up with three winners and then have their artwork printed as greeting cards for people to send to family and friends this Christmas. Those cards will be on sale on the shop at threeravenspodcast.com with all profits split 50-50 with the winners, just like the cards from the first contest, which will be going live on the shop in the next week or so, along with new merch. Ooh, new Three Ravens merch. It's very exciting. Yes, it is. Now, as we said previously, we're going to keep our main correspondence section at the end of the podcast from now on. But do stick around as we have loads of interesting messages But for now, we can jump straight in and start celebrating. And what are we celebrating? Well, we're releasing the episode on the 17th of July, which is, of course, St. Kenelm's Day. Well, that well-known character of ecclesiastical history. That's true. But I'm actually quite surprised that the legend of St. Kenelm isn't better known because it's a fantastic story and sounds as though it belongs in a Brothers Grimm collection. Well, tell me more. Well, the story goes that Kenelm was the youngest child of Kenwolf of Mercia, he had two elder sisters, Quentreda and Bergenhilda, uh-huh. but because Kenelm was a boy, he was destined to succeed as king. So far, so patrilineal, yeah. but Quentreda had other ideas, apparently, and paid off her boyfriend, Ascobert, to take her little brother on the kind of hunting trip that worked against William Rufus <laughs> oh, centuries no later. Oh. Yeah, but the night before the boy's trip, Kenelm had a prophetic dream that he was going to die. Bravely, or perhaps stupidly, he still decided to go on the hunting trip and and stuck it out. Even when he sat down under a tree to rest and Ascabelt actually started digging a grave for him. Now you'd think at that point you'd run off or at least try to set a wild boar on Escobar or something. Or something, yeah, you would. But (laughs) Kenelm decided he was going to thrust his walking stick into the ground where it instantly took root and flowered and grew up years later to be an ash tree, which was named St. Kenelm's Ash. What use is that to a boy who's about to be murdered? It was no use at all. And it definitely didn't impress Ascobet, or maybe the thought of upsetting Quentreda worried him more because later in the day, he took Kenelm up into the hills and cut his head off. Oh my goodness, that's awful. But that's not all. What? Kenelm's soul turned into a dove, oh, as you which did. flew all the way to Rome with a <laughs> scroll in its beak, explaining what had happened, uh-huh. uh, which it presented to the Pope. So the Pope <laughs> then writes to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who sends out a search party for the body. 
It was quite an easy job for them because there was a pillar of light and a magical holy spring bursting out of the ground where Kenelm's body lay. Whoa. So the archbishop had the body carried in state to the abbey where all the bells were rung. Naturally. And Quentreda, who was now the queen at this point, didn't believe that they'd found Kenelm's body, presumably because she thought Ascovet had hidden it very well. Yeah. And perhaps short-sightedly, <laughs> pun absolutely intended, said, if that's true, may both my eyes fall out. Really? Did, did, no. Yeah, did, she really? really should have offered to eat her hat instead because both her <laughs> eyes fell out of her head and she died. Oh, amazing! Her body and her boyfriends were thrown into a ditch, but St. Kenelm has been revered as a saint and a martyr since the 9th century. Amazing story. That's quite theatrical, that it's one. good, isn't it? Yeah. And so, how do we celebrate St. Kenelm's Day? Well, our poor local vicar had better watch out, uh-huh. because the best way to celebrate, according to tradition, is by crabbing the parson. <laughs> crabbing the parson? Which means we need to hold a village fair, and as part of the entertainment, throw lots of crab apples at the vicar. <laughs> well, I'm not entirely sure what that has to do with the story of St. Kenelm. Nope. But it seems like a great way to take out any petty grievances against the priest you might have accumulated during the year. <laughs> Currently, I think I'm on excellent terms with Rector Paul. But, well, you let's, know. let's try and keep it that way. Let's not throw <laughs> any apples at him. <laughs> Other people also thought the Kenelm story was great because he pops up in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Oh. And there's a couple of poems about him too, one of which has been set to music, The Ballad of St. Kenelm. Ooh. And we'll put a link on our blog to that so you can have a listen. It's really great. Oh. With that, is it time to uh, start clattering some bells? It is indeed time for the county criers to jingle those bells and ring us into Dorset. Dorset is in the southwest of England. It's bordered by the English Channel to the south, Hampshire to the east, Devon to the west, Somerset to the northwest, and Wiltshire to the northeast. It is, of course, famous for being the birthplace, home, and inspiration of one of my favourite authors, Thomas Hardy. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to be trying really hard not to make this just an episode about the work of Hardy, <laughs> but if he creeps in now and then, don't judge me. Okay. Martin. You spent a lot of time in Dorset, but how familiar are you with its folklore? Well, I have to be honest, not terribly. And, you know, I have quite a lot of family from Dorset. So um, a lot of my mother's side of my family are from the area around Mudford, for example. So, you know, I spent a bit of time in Dorset. And we, of course, like to holiday at Lyme Regis in Dorset, which is a wonderful place. But I have to say, folk tales and stories, I don't think many of them that I know are specific to the area. Well, hopefully you'll be entering by today's research in yes. that case. Yes, you mentioned Lyme Regis, yeah. um, which of course has inspired authors from Jane Austen to John Fowles and is probably the fossil hunting capital of England oh, amazing due to the amazing finds by Mary Anning and other geologists over the centuries. Yes. The majority of Dorset's coastline is actually part of the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site, which spans an amazing 185 million years of geological yeah. history and which has actually been exposed by coastal erosion. Mm-hmm. So rock formations which cover the Jurassic, Triassic and Cretaceous periods are visible. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Well, quite. <laughs> now, I, I love the walk you can do along the Jurassic coastline because a huge section of land collapsed, basically. It, yeah. fe- it fell down. 
And if you walk along the Jurassic Coast, there's sort of a, a protected walk that you can do there that goes on for a really long way. You can find shepherd's cottages and sheep dips made of stone and all sorts of uh, bits and remnants of the time when this huge collapse took place. So it's almost like its own sort of time chamber or like a, like, a, like a bit of history that survived because this chunk of land collapsed and slid down the cliffs, exposing all of this new rock. But you can still wander and pick through uh, all these abandoned homes that were there when the cliff Slips fell down. down. Yeah. Yes, and the backdrop behind them is, of course, these layers of rock from all of these different periods. That's it's the one way. Amazing. Yeah. And then the other way, it's the ocean. So it's a really magical, special yes, place. Yes, well worth a visit. And it is quite easy to imagine that dinosaurs might once have roamed the chalk downs and limestone ridges of the county, and of course, may again one day. Well, life finds a way. <laughs> yeah. So. A few centuries after our ferocious friends, the dinosaurs, the Romans <laughs> established the settlement, which is now known as Dorchester in the first century. Oh, is that old? It is. They named it Dernavaria, which sounds really romantic and beautiful, Dernavaria, yep. until you discover that it means place with fist-sized pebbles. <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. Wonderful. The Romans. Thanks for that. <laughs> the Saxons then adapted that to Dornwaracaster, which means old Roman town with fist-sized pebbles. <laughs> why, why the fist-sized pebbles? Why is that so remarkable? Presumably that was a feature. Okay. <laughs> Dorchester is a, a modernised version of that. Uh, and the county was first recorded as being named Dorsetshire in the 10th century. That's the archaic name, and it's just known as Dorset today, not Dorsetshire. Okay, and Dorset was part of the Kingdom of Wessex, which we've spoken about quite a bit. Hence, Hardy's adoption of the old name for his kind of fantasy world that he writes his stories into. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dorset was absorbed into Wessex in the 7th century, probably under King Kentwin. The county's motto is, Who's Afeard? Of the big bad wolf? Well, one wonders. Uh, not not clarified. Um, okay. The motto is actually relatively modern and was suggested by Thomas Hardy oh, okay. <laughs> to All the right. Society of Dorset Men, who officially adopted it and converted it into dialect, oh, which I think is quite intriguing. That is really I want to know who's afraid of what. I know. Well... Hopefully the people of Dorset are afraid of no one. And presumably everyone else ought to be afraid of the people of Dorset. Yeah, quite, but quite yes, right. if anyone knows anything more about that, we would love to hear. I already feel like I've had revelations. Tell me more about Dorset's history. What other major events actually happened in Dorset? Because it's quite a sleepy place now, really. Yeah, it's perhaps hard for us to imagine today. As I think we see Dorset more as a tourist place, much busier in the summer months, yeah. especially in the coastal towns. But it was a much more important political player historically. Quite a few military events actually took place in the Middle Ages, especially in the anarchy. Uh -huh. And the port towns were very busy and prosperous. Sir Walter Raleigh settled in Sherborne in the 1590s and was actually MP for Dorset for a was while. Was yeah. yeah, and um, Dorset's also been home to some pretty interesting civil unrest over the centuries uh, as well. Well, I know your pal Oliver Cromwell had all sorts yeah, of mischief he got up certainly to featured. Down there. And there were quite a lot of royalist strongholds in Dorset, um, despite it being primarily a parliamentarian place, especially yes. Lyme Regis was a staunchly parliamentarian, um, especially Corfe Castle, which they managed to defend for a bit, the Royalists, before it was sieged and captured in 1646. 
But there is a really fun detail in Dorset in the midst of the Civil War. It's a kind of Civil War, Civil War. I think I know what you're talking about, but expand. Yeah, so a group of Dorset civilians who hadn't really chosen either side in the war, but were completely fed up with the disruption the whole thing was causing, gathered a force together at Shaftesbury to have a battle with the parliamentarians, basically to say, we've had enough of your war. (laughs) They were known as the club men because they went into battle with simple weapons like clubs and farm tools. And Eleanor, Did the club men win? Against the gunpowder-fueled certainty (laughs) of Cromwell's supporters, they did not. Well, but they weren't afeared. No, definitely not afeared. (laughs) Quite dead, but not afeared. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't there something about the Duke of Monmouth too? I remember that we went on a ghost tour in Lyme Regis and he was definitely an important character in that. His ghostly horse, if I remember rightly, is meant to clatter up the cobbled streets of Lyme Regis. Yes, that's right. And shout out to the gentleman who took us on that very entertaining tour. So Charles II's bastard son, James Monmouth, tried to start a rebellion against James II. And he landed at Lyme Regis in France and made a little bit of progress before he and his supporters were very decisively quelled by Judge Jeffreys and his bloody assizes. Oh, those bloody assizes. Bloody assizes. <laughs> but the, the civil unrest in Dorset doesn't end there, so there must be something in the water. Ooh, what else? What else? In 1686, at Charborough Park near Beer Regis, a group first met to start plotting the deposition of James II, who's Ooh, very popular James II, yeah, mm-hmm. and the instalment of Mary and William of Orange in his place. And then we also have the Toll Puddle Martyrs, which yes. I think is such an interesting story. I have heard of them. They were a group of labourers, if I remember rightly, and they formed something called maybe like the Society of Agricultural Workers. No, the Friendly Society of Agricultural Labourers. But in the 19th century, when it was illegal to organise with the purpose of gaining better working conditions. So they weren't actually martyred, if I remember rightly. But every single one of them, I think, was deported to Australia. Yeah, that's right. Luckily, these days, the government's much more sympathetic to the plight of unionising workers, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, yeah. The the toll puddle martyrs, that really didn't work out. (laughs) In terms of industries, though, and sort of things people might want to unionise over in Dorset, farming was and is absolutely huge. But historically, Purbeck marble, a limestone, was quarried and brought a lot of wealth into the area. Yeah, gorgeous stone, yeah. Rope making was also a really big industry particularly in Bridport, Uh so much so that to be stabbed with a Bridport dagger was a colloquial term for being hanged. Oh, that's really cool. The Bridport dagger is the length of hangman's rope. Oh, how interesting. And Henry VII was such a big fan of Bridport rope that he decreed all the rope made within a five-mile radius of the town was to be reserved for use of the Royal Navy. That's so interesting because Dorset is important to the naval trade and naval warfare. It always has been, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we love castles and ruined abbeys in the Raven's Nest. That is the Three Ravens podcast. And what have we got in Dorset? Because I know I've been to a few. Um, so what can we add to our ever-increasing visiting bucket list? Well, it's turning into more of a barrel list <laughs> <laughs> because we have loads of fantastic sites. It's Corfe Castle, I've mentioned. Yeah, lovely. Two castles in Sherbourne, an old one and a new one. Yep. Maiden Castle, which is an incredible Iron Age hill fort. Portland Castle on the Isle of Portland. The list 
goes on really. I've never been to Portland Castle. I'd like to no, go. No, me neither. So pop that on the barrel list. Yeah. Then as for Abbey's, we've got Shaftesbury Abbey, Cern Abbey, yep. Abbotsbury Abbey, which was dissolved by... Yeah, okay. We're going to need to employ a groaning chorus just to yell, Henry VIII in the background <laughs> soon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and Sherborne Abbey, which was a Saxon cathedral in the 8th century and has been built on and expanded throughout the centuries. And it's a beautiful parish church today. Yeah, it's gorgeous. If you like a literary tour, there are, of course, Thomas Hardy's birthplace and the house he designed and built, Max Gate. But Lyme Regis is also great for fans of John Fowles' The French Lieutenant's Woman and Jane Austen's Persuasion. Just make sure someone's there to catch you if you want to slip off the car. <laughs> yes, into the arms of a handsome officer. <laughs> Jamie Faulkner's Moonfleet and Ian McEwan's On Chesil Beach are both set on Chesil Beach. <laughs> yeah. And Corf Castle inspired Enid Blyton's Kieran Castle in Five on Treasure Island. Well, we've had a good rifle through Dorset's historic and literary past, but what I need is folklore. So what do I need to know as a folklore tourist? I'm headed down. What are the dangers in the bushes and caves? Well, the first thing it may be helpful to have in your folkloric travel guide uh -huh. is to watch out for hares running down village streets as they mean a fire will shortly break out in one of the houses. Excellent. So don't choose an Airbnb near any hair forms. Nope. And if you <laughs> develop a wart while yeah. you're on your holidays, uh -huh. which I know we, we often all do, holiday <laughs> yeah. warts. Oh no, another holiday complaint. wart. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry though. Just take a straw, uh -huh. tie a knot in it, pass it over the wart without speaking, then place it carefully on the table. Then you bury it and uh, as it rots, the warts will go. Oh, well, I actually don't need to worry about finding a pharmacy on my tour of Dorset. No, just a nice piece of straw. <laughs> the real thing to watch out for, though, is the Dorset knob. Excuse me? Well, it might not sound like it, this is actually a delightful culinary delicacy. Uh, okay. It's a big, round, hard savoury biscuit, usually eaten with blue cheese or sweet tea and celebrated every year in a knob throwing <laughs> festival, which has lovely family friendly activities like knob painting, <laughs> knob darts, knob and spoon and guess the weight of the big knob. They were also a beloved snack of... What? Thomas Hardy. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> we may have to deploy a Hardy jar, a bit like a swear jar. Every time you mention them, you have to put a pound in. I guess the knobs will be on me then, because that's a lot of pounds already. <laughs> so after you've enjoyed the Knob Festival, you might also like to take in the Pack Monday Fair, which is a traditional street fair held in Sherborne around Michaelmas. I've never heard of it. Well, it's originally an agricultural fair, but seems also to have been fairly devoted to the making of noise. Excellent, good. That's a Dorset tradition, that is, noise yeah, making. noise making. So the custom of announcing the fair with raucous, rough music continues continues to this day. The noise is mainly made by Teddy Rose Band, which is probably the longest running band in the whole of history. What? Without the original lineup, of course, <laughs> as it's been going since the 1490s, what? when Teddy Rowe, the foreman of the Masons, working on the fan-vaulted ceiling of Sherborne Abbey, gave his workers a day off to go to the fair. Sounds like a good And they, guy. they celebrated by playing noisy music with whatever they had available. Fantastic. The band actually got suppressed in the 1960s. No way. Yeah, because of its so-called potential for rowdyism. <laughs> <laughs> 
wish I might put on my business card uh, potential for roundyism, yeah. but the traditions come back, so we'll pay for that. Pack Monday fair. Well, that sounds like a good time. Well, I think so. Well, rather more sinister is you might catch a sighting of the Dorset Oozer. Ooh. which is a huge hollow wooden head dating from the 19th century with horns, a beard and a hinged mouth. The Dorset Oozer. The Dorset Oozer. Now, a replica of it still gets used sometimes in St George's Day Morris dances, but it was more likely used in rough music or skimity riding, yes. which was used by people to express their displeasure with someone else in the community. Like in the Mayor of Casterbridge. Who's doing it now? Put a pound in the knob jar. <laughs> But yes, exactly like in the Mayor of Casterbridge. But another fun fact about the Oozer is that it actually went missing in 1867. Ooh. So someone actually decided to steal this huge, horrible head. Oh, imagine finding that in your grandma's attic. Oh, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got your travel advice. Yep. You've got some great events to attend. <laughs> so grab your myth-tinted binoculars and get ready for the sights and sounds of Dorset's folklore. Is this going to be like a really odd episode of Springwatch? Like yes. <laughs> Okay, all right, cool, I'm ready. So, as we carefully approach the road bordering the sea from Weymouth to Portland, uh-huh. we can see, bobbing in the waves, the very rare plumage of the Portland Mer Chicken. No, a Mer Chicken? Yes. <laughs> Chronicled by Rafe of Holland said the Mer Chicken was supposed to have a huge crest, yes. a large red beard, uh-huh. and legs half a yard long. Half a yard long? Yep, it rises up from the depths of the sea, presumably quite far, uh-huh. and its very long legs, stands on the water, crows four times, then bobs its head to every point of the compass before vanishing back into the sea. This is mad. This is insane. <laughs> a Mer Chicken? Yeah, it um, was supposedly seen by sailors, presumably not suffering from any form of malnutrition or seasickness no. spotted this horrendous chicken. I'm quite used to if you need to know where north is and, you know, it's the middle of the day, you can't judge, you've lost track. You just hope that the mer chicken comes up and bobs. Okay, yeah, that's north. Uh, All right, fantastic. thanks, mer chicken. Yeah, maybe it's actually a very helpful rather than horrendous creature. <laughs> Guess we'll never know. If you've seen the mer chicken off the coast of Portland, please let us know. I feel like there are other sea creatures around Dorset, though. Yes, uh, there's also the Shapwick crab. Yeah, okay. This was, in fact, an actual live crab rather uh-huh. than a mythical creature, being transported by a fishmonger from Pool to sell at Beer Regis. This crab, regular, just normal-sized crab, sure. fell or possibly scuttled out of the basket and wandered off to Shapwick. What? But the villagers there hadn't seen anything like it before, so they naturally assumed it was the devil <laughs> and grabbed their pitchforks to drive it away. So a comedy crab chase then ensues until the fishmonger popped back and collected the devil himself and took him off to market mm, to sell to someone for lunch. The dressed devil. Lovely. <laughs> exactly. uh, well, that definitely lends a totally different meaning to our film club film this week, The Blood on Satan's Claws. Crap Claws. <laughs> Dorset also has another good boy for our kennel of black dogs. Uh-huh. And this one is one I think most people would actually like to meet. Go on. There's a farmhouse outside Lyme Regis which is haunted by a black dog. Ooh. It didn't bother anyone, but one night the farmer got drunk and tried to attack it with a poker. Oh no! The dog ran up to the attic and escaped through the ceiling. But when the farmer hit the place it had vanished with the poker, he found a hoard of treasure. Oh. So that was worked out pretty well for him. Yeah, cool. And they do say that to this day, dogs who go out at night in that area 
have mysteriously disappeared. Oh, maybe they're all finding treasure. Yeah, yeah well, they, they've gone to join the original yeah, treasure maybe dog. a lovely mythic dog home yeah. exists. Oh, oh, that's very nice. Maybe ghosts can go there to pet the dogs. Yeah, that'd be lovely. <laughs> well, if you like music, it's worth paying a visit to the Long Barrows, which can be found along the ridgeway between Weymouth and Dorchester. Yes. Apparently at certain times, the barrows make strange sounds. So they've been nicknamed the Singing Marys. Mm-hmm. Famous, Sarah. Their singing has been variously attributed to fairies, ghosts and the wind. So you decide. Yeah, it's ghosts. Definitely ghosts. No Definitely questions. Is. Sure yeah. it's not fairies? No, it's ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're up in the hills, we can also pay a visit to the Cern Abbas Giant. Yes. A 55 metre hill figure with, shall we say his very own Dorset knob. Yeah, but I think this is quite a famous image, the old... Uh, the most famous knob Abbas giant. of England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the earliest record of the giant is from the 17th century, but it's likely older and may correspond to the legend of a real local giant whose corpse lies beneath the figure, possibly after leading an invasion from Denmark. Oh, that's quite interesting, from Denmark. Oh, the Danes were constantly evading with their giants. Oh, were they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was a well-known tactic, bring a giant. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, the giant is associated with fertility. And infertility can apparently be resolved through either sleeping on the figure or... How should we put this? Taking a close friend to the Dorset Knob Festival <laughs> on a particular part of yeah, the hill figure. Indeed, it is actually famous locally that you should, if you're having trouble conceiving, pop by the Sir Nabus Giant and spend a little bit of time on uh, a particular part of his anatomy. Yeah. And does it work? I mean, I have not tried, I have to say. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. We welcome any listener stories if you have, in fact, tried that uh, with any degree of success. <laughs> so it's time for our story this week. Ooh, exciting. Settle your mer chickens down for the legend of William Doggett, Vampire Ghost. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The hedgerows were wild with brambles and spiked tangles, their fruit just beginning to darken, as I went towards the little church at Tarrant Gumville where the wedding would be celebrated. I'd been out of the area for some time, although I'd grown up there and still had an aunt local to the country, but I was still known. People in these parts have long memories for names and lineages, and in truth, 
I had never felt as at home in my adopted town of Beer Regis as I did among the winding lanes and rolling fields of Blamford. It was high time that I returned, and the design on Fate's tapestry had been woven in my favour. A death in the area, an opening for my trade, and my wife's ill health meant that removing back to Tarrant was the best possible choice. The air of the countryside far from the bustle of Beer Regis would soon see Amelia restored, and I could continue my calling among my own people. As I'm a doctor by trade, it was half to be expected that no sooner had I been recognised by somebody as the son of John Symes, I was pressed into service to deal with Carrie Pitfield's toothache. I was able to oblige, and the Pitfields invited me to her sister Marjorie's wedding in thanks. As I knew enough of the players, it was natural enough for me to accept the invitation without feeling like an outsider, and Mrs. Pitfield told me that Marjorie would consider it a compliment to have a real doctor from beer in attendance. The wedding day was soaked in sunshine and brightened by the colourful bonnet ribbons of the village girls, and the feast afterwards warmed with good cheer and strong cider brewed by Mrs. Pitfield. Marjorie and her groom Jim were flush-faced and pleased with one another, and were the centre of the dancing when the pipes and fiddles struck up. They were ushered off to bed eventually with the customary banging of pots and strewing of fresh flowers, and the few of us who were left sat around the fire enjoying another pot of cider. The light was fading outside, and so we got to lighting pipes and telling stories, as men do on such occasions. Who has Eastbury House these days? I asked, because I'd been out of the area so long and was behind with local politics. There was immediately a shifting around on stools, a clearing of throats and a twinkling of eyes, as though I'd said something worthy of note rather than making an innocent inquiry. Eastbury House, what's left of it? said Grandfather White with a wheezing tobacco-choked chuckle. What do you mean? I asked, somewhat perturbed, as I'd always known it to be a grand house and the flower of the country. Was it not Earl Temple's? It were always a hard struggle to keep it up, said Grandfather. Like a hungry beast, it were, always wanting more time, more money, more fine trappings. I heard it were a farm once, before it were a big house, said Willie Stickland. Aye, that it were, and with a fine herd of shorthorns. The king's own admiral had it built out to suit his ends. What need he had for such a sprawler of a house he had, I can't say. I nodded, remembering walking over the fields to Eastbury House as a boy. Its five courts and wings had been an impressive sight to my young eyes. Precious little there is there now, said Stickland. What's happened? I asked, wondering how such a great house could have been brought low. Well, after George Bubb, the fat devil, had it, it fell into the hands of Earl Temple, and then to his son. Temple, the father, did his level best with it, said Grandpa White, pouring in money like well water without receiving much reward. But Temple, the son, soon found it too much for him and had to go off into Italy for his health. A goat many of our peers do the same, I hear, said Gaffer Dibbon, who thought himself something of a wit. And when he went off, said Grandfather, carrying on as though Dibbon had not spoken, he left it in the hands of the steward to manage the estate. And this was common enough in that time, and it was well known that the stewards usually lived fine lives, like lords themselves in their master's absence. William Doggett was his name, that steward, said Grandfather. Did you ever know the Doggett family, Doctor? 
The name was familiar to me, but I knew none of the family personally. Ah, I'll tell you of Dogged, said a voice from the chimney corner. It belonged to a very old man, so heavily lined and wrinkled as to look like he belonged to the grain of the wood surrounding the chimney piece, and who I had not previously noticed because of the thick cloud of pipe smoke obscuring him from view. Greedy he was, and sly, and canny too, and they say the maids never wanted to work at Eastbury House while he were around, for his hands wandered where they weren't wanted, and further besides. He'd been skimming off the top of the estate's profits for years before Lord Temple finally went off to Italy. He was deep in with some low-down types too, gambling men who were no strangers to breaking legs and causing accidents to those who owed them. The dice were his downfall, and he lost all his coin on the regular, so he was always short of money, even though his salary from the stewardship would have been a handsome one to a more prudent man. Well... When Lord Temple goes off, Doggett sees his chance. All kinds of things start to walk out of the house, things that never had legs before, plate and candlesticks and tea sets, right down to the sticks of furniture. And money changes hands for him too. Money that goes right into Doggett's pockets. But he loses it fast enough, same way he always does. He's drinking his way through Earl Temple's wine cellar and inviting all sorts to keep company with him in the house. All sorts of folk who wouldn't be welcome in an honest house and never saw the inside of a church neither, I wouldn't be surprised. And all the while, he's writing letters to Lord Malcolm telling him everything's falling apart and he needs more money to keep up the house and the estate and the farm. Of course, there were no farm left to speak of by then because Doggett had sold off the cattle and let the men go. My cousin Jack used to work on that farm till Doggett sent him off, said Charlie Rose, and there was a deferential shift around him as though his familial connection made him more important to the story. But then one day, Doggett gets a letter back, said the lined old man, or so the tale goes, from his lord telling him to have two wings of the house demolished to sell off the materials. Well, as you all know, there was more than enough house to get away with smashing down half of it and still leave something which would pass for a palace in these parts. The way the Earl saw it, the money that brought him would leave enough to make the repairs and keep the estate going. The stone with fine perfect marble, you see, so it was worth a pretty something. Of course, Doggett was delighted, but he chose to understand his orders a bit different. He had the whole main house knocked down and the parts sold off, all to satisfy his greed. There were only a tiny section of the north wing and the old stables left, which he kept for his use. Soon enough, he were going through the same dance as before, drinking and gambling away the money. But then, Doggett gets another letter. It's one he don't want. Lord Temple's coming home, he's tired of Italy, and he's ready to settle down, run the estate and the farm. Course there is no farm, and no house, and not much of anything else either. So William Doggett is a desperate man, a rat cornered by the dogs. He thinks to buy back the stone and the wood and rebuild the house, but there's no money to buy, and besides, the stones is all built into other houses by this time. Parts of it are in the rectory, I believe, said the parson who had married the couple and who presumably lived in the rectory. Aye, that's the truth. There's more in Ashmore Manor, too. What? 
did Doggett do? I asked, eager to learn the conclusion of the story. The only thing he could, said the old man grimly. He took Lord Temple's pistol and shot himself, right under the jaw. They say the bullet went right through his head and out the top of it. There was an uncomfortable fidgeting, not least because the parson was among our company. Well, Temple gets back to England, finds no house, just a ruin of a stables and an estate piled high in debt. He did rebuild, but it's a much more modest house now, and the farms never come back. Thing is, though, said the old man, leaning forward and blowing a puff of pipe smoke out into the room. Doggett didn't lie quiet. They say doors in that house are opened by unseen hands, and that in the room he shot himself, the floor and ceiling are always stained with blood, no matter how much it's been cleaned and repainted in fine new colours. They've seen his ghost too, said Gaffer Dibbon with great relish. His face, just a mass of blood. I looked at the parson, expecting him to disapprove of such superstition, but he was nodding along as eagerly as any of them. How do you come to know so much about it? I asked the old man who told the story. Because Doggett were my brother, he said, a complicated knot of emotion suddenly twisting his face. And I hope he don't sleep quiet, for he don't deserve to. And he spat upon the floor, a gob of tobacco-stained spittle landing on the rushes. A general pleasurable shudder passed through the company, and I had the feeling they would settle down to a long night of stories about spooks and spectres. I've never cared for such things, so I excused myself and began my walk back to the lodgings I'd taken some three miles off. The harvest moon was yellow bright in the sky, lighting a clear path for me to find my footing across the heath. I thought of the moon casting its light on the young, newly married couple, but I confess that I thought more of the story of Doggett and his sad and ugly end. As I approached the crossroads which would lead me to my lodgings or back to Beer and Amelia, I saw a collection of bobbing lights and heard a conference of voices. Good evening, I called, and the owners of the voices started and turned to me, appearing somewhat embarrassed. It was a group of local men, some of whom had been at the festivities earlier in the day and were still wearing their best clothes. Several were armed with forks and shovels, and I saw that they were standing round a gaping hole in the ground. "'What are you about here?' I asked, for the look of them in the moonlight was somewhat unearthly. The men shuffled and muttered. I crossed to the side of the hole they'd dug by the handpost and recoiled in horror when I looked down into it and beheld the body of a man newly dead by his appearance. "'That be the villain Doggett,' said one of the fellows, who I thought might be the husband of Martha Stickland, Willie's eldest daughter. I started, but it was the very man who had haunted the evening's conversation. But then I made myself walk to the edge of the makeshift grave and look down into it again. After all, I am no stranger to death. That cannot be, I said, and felt that in my heart to be true, for the body of the man I was looking down at was as fresh as though he had died that morning, and as pink and healthy in colour as though he had simply gone to sleep. There was a bandage wound around his head and underneath his chin, but apart from that he looked as alive as I. But it was impossible, for the William Doggett of the story had died many years before, 
No sign of rot or decay had eaten away at this man's flesh, and no foul smell arose from the grave. It's unnatural, said one of the men. And he walks. Everyone knows it. We're here to make sure he don't. I saw then that Martha Stickland's husband was holding in his hand a sharpened wooden stake, and recalled the outdated ideas of my native country that those who took their own lives were thought to remain on earth for all eternity, emerging from their graves to prey upon the living. The stake was supposed to hold them in position and prevent them from wrecking their mischief. I had no desire to be part of such a practice, so I bid them a curt good night. But I looked down into the grave of William Doggett again before I left them. Besides his freshness of appearance, I saw that the legs of the corpse had been tied together with a bright yellow ribbon, which appeared ghoulishly similar to the one Martha Stickland had worn in her hat to the wedding. "'To slow and down,' said one of the younger men with satisfaction. I left them in haste and had walked a mile before I realised I was going in the wrong direction, back towards Tarrant Gunville and not to my lodgings. My thoughts were so disordered with visions of phantoms and corpses rising from the dead in a manner I knew I should not countenance as a man of reason. Before I knew it, I was almost at the edge of the Eastbury estate. Some unhallowed curiosity in me made me walk on, closer to the house until I saw its shape loom before me in the moonlight. It certainly was much reduced from the grand edifice I recalled from my childhood. Suddenly behind me, I heard coach wheels, thundering along the lane at a breakneck speed. I pressed myself back into the hedge, sure I would be mown down by the horse's hooves. But no coach could I see, and I would swear to this day that none was there, even when the sound was deafeningly close to me, and I could smell the sweat of the horses and feel the rush of wind against my face. I would swear too. But as the sound and the sensation of the invisible coach passed me, I heard a hoarse voice, thick with drink, call out to the driver to speed home. Rooted to the spot with amazement at that which I had heard but not seen, I listened to the sound as it drew closer to Eastbury House. It seemed as though a few moments passed before I heard a sudden gunshot, piercing the night like a cry of anguish. I ran towards the house, certain my services would be required to avert some tragedy, but when I came to its entrance I found it dark and quiet, with no sign that anything had occurred at all. I wondered then if there was more to Doggett's brother's tale than mere fancy, but I feared that the work of the men at the crossroads had not been a success, and if anything had only served to anger the restless spirit. I did not move Amelia back to the place of my birth after all, and have never been back there myself, even though I'm an old man now and have missed many births, marriages and funerals in the parish on account of my most particular aversion to the country around Tarrant Gumville and its haunting by the vampire William Doggett. So, Martin, the ghost of William Doggett, the vampire of Tarrant Gumville, what did you think? Well, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, when we think about vampires, we immediately think blood-sucking, Dracula, but this is not a blood-sucking vampire. No, apparently not, although I think superstitions about them emerging from their graves to prey on the living involve the drinking of blood. Yes. 
What we do know is that the body of William Doggett, who was a real person, was exhumed and it was found to be very fresh, even though it shouldn't have been at all. Well, that ties back to kind of Eastern European roots of vampire myths. The idea that local residents would climb out of the grave and terrorise the living. So it wasn't necessary that blood drinking and blood sucking was part of the vampire myth. That kind of developed later. And when we're talking about these early, early roots, we're talking about kind of Renaissance, you know, 15th century. Mm, That's right. So how old is this myth? Uh, it's 18th century, okay. uh, sort of late 18th century into 19th century. So you picked a kind of Hardean story telling frame or tone to tell a story from a kind of Hardean period. I'm actually surprised that Hardy didn't pick up on this yeah. uh, because it sounds like the kind of thing he would have absolutely loved. I mean, there are definitely some resonances with the story of William Doggett in a lot of Hardy's work. And I, yeah, absolutely was inspired by several Hardean motifs to retell my story, as was to be expected. Well, this idea of country life where you've got a kind of uh, upper landowning class that aren't necessarily taking terribly good care of their land, and then these middlemen who actually have to do the work and manage people, Mm -hmm. and then labourers at the very bottom of society whose hands are the ones who actually get dirty. And uh, and obviously in Hardy, you always have these interesting differences between the uh, kind of pub gossip that's going on about yep. what's happening. The old men gathered round the chimney piece always yep. have something to say. <laughs> and, and then, of course, the adventures and romances that exist between those in the upper classes of society. Um, I liked in particular the idea of this man who's clearly a villain and everybody knows he's a villain, but nobody stops him. No, and nobody does anything. I think the the rural isolation, like the great house is separate from the village and the village itself, our idea of a village versus what a village would have been like um, is quite different. It's a much more spread out community and people thought nothing of walking miles. No, that's true. Like, oh, it's fine. It's a three mile walk home in the dark. I'll just do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They were much more more, more practiced. I think being, being isolated... And they would have also thought, it's not our business. Yes. Oh, he's, you know, he's not of our class. It's nothing to do with us. And final question for you, I guess. Does William Doggett still haunt the highways and byways? Yes. Uh, paranormal investigators have seen flashes of light and the sound, which the doctor in my story reports hearing of the Phantom Coach, uh, is, is still can still be heard. So the Phantom Coach supposedly actually picks up the ghost of Doggett it was a bit I, I didn't include, who then tells him to drive home, drives home at breakneck speed. The ghost gets out, goes into the house and shoots himself. So reenacting his death over and over again. We see that in quite a lot of go- in hauntings, don't we? Yes. Ghosts kind of stuck in this infinite loop. Um, the, the vampire thing is just a, a sort of side note. I think because he wasn't actually buried at the crossroads. He was buried in a vault. Um, yeah. And because conditions in the vault would have been obviously very cold. And when the body was exhumed, it was found to be very fresh. And if people keep seeing him and hearing him about, then it makes sense that he would be a vampire, something that rises from the grave to protect. Yes, I think ghost and vampire were quite connected and not necessarily different. Um, The yellow ribbon is also true, but nobody knows why his legs were tied together. I think there was a lot of superstition around suicides. And William Doggett wasn't staked through the heart. I actually 
took that from a short story of Hardy's in which an old soldier shoots himself and he is buried at the crossroads and the villagers stake him through the heart. Even though he's not a vampire, there was just all of this incredible stigma and taboo around suicides. They couldn't be buried in churchyards and they, people feared their ghosts would be unquiet. So this character is staked. Fascinating. Well then, shall we talk correspondence? Yes, let's. Okay, well, firstly, we had a new review on Apple Podcasts. So this one's from Sadie's Art, and they write, The Three Ravens podcast is wonderful. A great blend of English history and folklore, very well produced and very entertaining. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you, Sadie's Art. And please, if you can, hop on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and write us a review. Each one really helps other people to find the podcast. And speaking of helping others find us, we have to say a big thank you to all our likers, commenters and super sharers on social media this week, including Sabrina, Reese, Michelle, Sean, Yasmin, Ariane, Lenny is writing ghost stories, Stephen, Claire, Lawrence, Dream Swarm and the Myth and Monsters podcast. We've also had some really nice messages and interactions this week, including building on Sam's folktale that she submitted to our first listener episode. Oh, is that the Bradbury Clump? Yes, so a listener who'd like to remain anonymous had further information about that folktale, which, if you remember, was about a lady who entertained rich and powerful men, was taken to court and then given a special residence by those self-same rich and powerful men on Babbury Clump. I remember. Well, two ladies apparently lived there. Uh A woman called Christine Keeler and another called Mandy Rice Davies. And one of their visitors was said to be Jack Profumo, he of the Profumo Affair. Well, well, the Three Ravens podcast rubbing shoulders with government cover-ups and actual proper honest-to-goodness conspiracies. Yeah. We've also had a really interesting set of interactions with our friend David Crowther from the History of England podcast, along with several other people on Twitter about gravestones. Tell me more. Well, David got in touch about a gravestone inscription he'd found from 1942 containing one of Mother Shipton's prophecies. It reads, When pictures look alike... With movement free, when ships like fishes swim beneath the sea, when men outstripping birds can scan the sky, then half the world deep drenched in blood shall be. Blimey. And we know that Mother Shipton was this famous witch and prophetess, but when was she alive? She was alive from 1488 to 1561. And we've spoken about her before a few times. Predicted 1942. That's it. Starting with our Somerset episode. So if you go back to episode two, what's so fascinating to me is this lady who was alive in the 15th and 16th centuries made these predictions, including this one. And then, as David and these other Twitter users discovered, around World War II, so like the 1940s there was a huge revival in using this particular prophecy about what sounds like submarines and aircraft and television and loads and loads of epitaphs how many loads well twitter user mark hurley went to the british newspaper archive and in a cursory look found over 60 different occasions where this epitaph had been used and there's likely many many more wow how cool is that incredibly cool as was this message left by Denise Newton on the Cornwall episode blog on the Three Ravens website. She says, I'm loving these podcasts. I began with the Somerset one, having recently returned from a trip around many English counties tracing places featured in my family history. I have ancestors from all over England, but my father's father's people hailed from Somerset. 
I visited Dunster and enjoyed hearing your tale about the purported witch with her three husbands. I nearly fell off my chair when I heard the name of one of them, John Newton. I traced many villages where the Newtons and associated families lived, around the Quantock Hills mainly, although one woman, Anne Long, who married a Newton man, was from Dunster. Which means there's a very good chance that one of Denise's ancestors may have been the first husband of Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sand Hill from way back in episode two. How insanely wonderfully brilliant. Well, as always, do please keep writing to us by email on 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and reflections about the podcast and with any news you might have related to stuff we've covered in previous episodes as ever do also send us your favorite folk tales or bits of local lore as well so we can include them in our next upcoming listener episode and likewise please keep on telling your friends about the podcast and join the three ravens community on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and on twitter at three ravens pod and for exclusive and bonus content please sign up to our patreon for three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon dot com forward slash three ravens podcast so martin where will we be taking our folkloric holidays next week we are off to northamptonshire the county of spires and squires for the terrifying tale of the hexam heads love a spire less sure about a squire or from the sounds of it a hexam head <laughs> but i will look forward to hearing what they all got up to <laughs> and so while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to Dorset Folk Tales by Tim Laycock, the Visit Dorset website, the Inside Dorset blog and the Greenwood Grange blog. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production produced by me, Martin Vaughs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.